finally went to the doctor, esophageal cancer. So the way things worked out and like things are starting to go sideways already. I remember extremely clearly and I will till the day I die when we had to wake up the younger ones. Welcome to Phoenix Forge. Well, now what? The podcast that proves when you're forged in fire, you become strong as steel. I'm your guide, Samantha Sierra. Join me and my guests from around the world as we share our stories of triumph after trauma. Topics discussed during these conversations are hard. The stories may be difficult to hear, but they're important. They're proof that your past doesn't define your future. You do. Welcome to Phoenix Forge. My name is Sam, and today I have my guest, the one and only John Connolly. How are you, John? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You want to go ahead and just uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thank you again for having me on the show. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, just on the Virginia side of the river. I've been working. I was a librarian for 16 years. Currently, I work in project management. I am married. We have four children, uh, two cats. We live in a townhome in uh, just, a, just across the creek from the Bull Run Regional Park. It's like attached to the Bull Run Battlefield from the Civil War. Oh, nice. Yeah, so... A lot of history down here, a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of varied communities. Growing up, I was born in Chicago, and my family, when I was 14 years old, decided to relocate us from the suburbs of Chicago to a town called Junction City, Wisconsin, with a population of about 500 people. It's a lot of people for a dinner party for a metropolis. It is not a lot of people. So- How was that? It was- Difficult, right? Like, so I guess maybe context for my family, right? My parents were, I mean, my mom still is, but my dad was a very religious person, very traditional, very like, like he loved the culture into which he was born, right? 1950s, 1960s America. And he got deep into traditionalist Roman Catholicism, the pre 1960s, like, were full bore, hardcore, Latin only. And we were raised in that, right? I learned to be an altar boy. We were going to a it's a very famous traditionalist church downtown in Chicago called St. John Cantius. Huge church. It's just a, it's an architectural specimen in my opinion. But I love the insides of churches that are like built way back when. Oh. Yeah, this was a 1930s church, I believe. So it's like, you know, depression era. Mm. Yeah. And my dad wanted to, he wanted to get away from what he called the rat race, right? Mm. Corporate life, work and whatever. And he wanted to, he had this dream in his head that he was going to move us to someplace rural and we were going to live the life the way that he thought it should be lived. And he was an electrician by trade. Mm -hmm. Most people, when they're looking to relocate, what do they prioritize, right? They say, I'm going to find my job, then I'm going to find a house in range of the job, and then I'll worry about like faith community and other things. Right. My dad started with the church he was looking for, then found a house in range of the church. Okay. And then he started worrying about a job. Oh, that's... So the way things worked out and like things are starting to go sideways already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. My parents had 10 children. We all piled into our giant van and we were driving. I remember summers, we would all go down to, we were going to Arkansas, we were going to Missouri because he was scoping out property. He wanted to figure out where we were going to relocate to. And he had a friend who owned a house in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He went up there. We stayed there for about a week and he loved it so much. He was like, this is it. This is where we're going to go. So we relocate to Junction City, Wisconsin. My youngest sister was nine days old when we bought the property at auction. 38 acres. How old were you? I was 14. Okay. 14 and nine days. Yes, that was the that's, spread. That's a stretch. So that was the spread. But there were 10 of us in between, so it's pretty packed in there. Yeah. <laughs> so we we buy this house. It's a dilapidated three-bedroom farmhouse that like it didn't have air conditioning it didn't have central air or heating the, the heating didn't work anymore this is wisconsin right no heat three bedrooms 
Yes, ten of us. Ten. We had kids? to we had to retrofit a third, a uh, fourth bedroom. But yeah, like it was bad. Is like like I would wake up in the in the morning and snow had blown in from the cracks in the windows onto the bedroom floor. It hadn't <sighs> melted. One bathroom, whole house, twelve people. Oof. Yeah, rough times. Those are those are quick showers. I'm the oldest of four. Yeah, and I remember like. You got to get in there quick. Turn it around. Your, your, yep. your sister got to get in get it there. Done. Get it done. Yeah. And I, I, you know, 14 years old is a hell of a time to do this kind of transplant. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was like right on the cusp of like puberty and change. And my bipolar disorder started to make itself felt. Mm. But of course we didn't know what that was. And my parents didn't believe in psychology. So there was the the solution was for me to go split wood in the shed as punishment for acting out or being upset or having a bad attitude for hours and like hours and hours. Wood, do you? I don't care, but you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't great, right? It wasn't yeah. great. And my parents, they did the best that they knew, but it fell short of being what we needed in a lot. Right. Of how do you? How do you? You know. So we relocate, right? And shortly thereafter, like my, my dad couldn't find work. The unions in, it was the Green Bay Union for electricians that we were living in. They, they didn't have enough jobs. So he would work for a little while and then he'd be the first one cut because he didn't have seniority. And mm -hmm. we couldn't make ends meet. So he went back down to Chicago and he worked there during the weeks and he'd come see us on the weekends. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the house was a nightmare, right? We had, we bought cows, we had chickens, we had pigs, we had ducks. Um, we're like doing the, the farmsteading type thing. We're all homeschooled mm -hmm. and my dad's gone most of the week. He comes back like he was in Chicago. He's September 11th happens and he's like still driving to work because he's like, oh no, I've got to work. I got to do right by my employer. Right. And no one else mm -hmm. is out there because you never know what's going to happen. It's like, just stay home. Just Stay home. Yeah. But that's the kind of person that he was, right? Right. So we're we're in this house. I remember like there was a, a nest of mice in the drop-down ceiling, and the baby mice kept falling out of the ceiling on us. It it was like there is a house of horror. Like this is the horror shows, right? Like this is this is it's everything's gone sideways, right? Then, you know, my dad's he's down there, he's with living with his parents, and he's having trouble eating. He's like, he's like, I swallow my food. It gets stuck in my throat. I swallow my food. It gets stuck in my throat. So he goes in. Finally, he didn't, never like going to the doctor. Finally went to the doctor. Do an endoscopy. Esophageal cancer. Okay. Wow. Well, now what? Well, the now what is we relocate back to Chicago. We kept the house, owned the house, but we all moved into my grandparents' house. All 12 of us. Um, I was sleeping on a cot in their basement while my dad was going to Northwestern University for chemotherapy and radiation. So he did chemo. He did chemo. He, uh, I remember him, you know, his hair fell out. He was, um, he was just, he spent all day like lying on the, on the, uh, the couch in my grandparents' living room. And it was, it was rough. It was rough. Yeah. While we were living in my grandparents' basement, word came down that our priest at the parish that my father had moved us to had been abusing two of my friends who were also altar boys. So this is going on. They have to drive me to lacrosse to the bishop's office so I can give testimony in the ecclesiastical investigation into this guy who ultimately ended up doing a like year-long stint in prison before being released. Wow. Yeah. So that was fun. <laughs> I'm 15 years old at this point. And Gosh. so then chemotherapy radiation ends. We move back home. To Wisconsin. To Wisconsin, yes. And I remember one day we came home, like we had been out doing something, I don't know, grocery shopping or something. And we got home and my dad was gone. Like furniture was moved, like the tables, like everything's everywhere, like ransacked first floor of the house. Turns out he had gone into cardiac arrest because of, like, it's one of these, like, ramifications of some of the treatments that he'd been getting for the cancer. 
but he, he didn't right. know there was a risk. And so like he has this huge issue, calls 911. They drove out, drove him to the hospital, which is like 40 minutes away from our house. Oh my yeah, God. There's, no, there's nothing near Junction City. The, nearest, like, really? the nearest bit of, of civilization is called Wisconsin Rapids. And it was close to 30 minutes away. Like that's how far we drove to get to the grocery store. Every time you need to go to the grocery yeah, store, half an nearer. hour? Yeah, there's nothing nearer. We take that kind of stuff for granted here. Yeah. Like I'm in the suburbs. It takes me like 10 minutes to get to the store. Not even. Yeah. No, this is, I mean, like in the middle of you're in the middle of no, like there's nothing. I just right. not, there's, there are pastures with cows in them and that's it. How did that make you feel like at that young age to just be out in the middle of nowhere? Like, was it difficult for you to meet friends and make bonds with people? I mean, all our friends had to be part of the church group. And there were some, there's not like we were lucky to be at that stage in the cycle that there were some kids in the church who were our age. Right. You know, it's, it was hard. It's hard for me to, to say, right? Partly mm -hmm. because like memory screws with you over time. And part yeah. of it because we were, we were all convinced that like this was the will of God. Mm. And my father lived by this creed. If you trust in God, he'll always take care of you. How did that impact his treatment? So here's the, that's kind of the next, the next page in the story, right? Is deeply impacted by this concept because the winter came is the winter of like 2021 to 22, uh, 20, 2001 to 2002. I'm getting mm -hmm. old. And, <laughs> um, and he fell and like hurt his back. Like he slipped on the ice on the front steps or whatever, carrying wood to our wood stove, which is how we heated the house. Mm -hmm. And he, the, the back wouldn't stop hurting, wouldn't stop hurting, wouldn't stop. And he finally goes to the doctor. And they're like, well, yeah, we need to take a scan. Well, there's a mass in your spinal column. Cancer is metastasized. It's game over. To his spine? Yeah, yeah. They're like, once it's there, it's done. You get max six months. So from the esophagus yep. to the spine. They had, they, they had done surgery on him. Um, like he had had the the top, the bottom half of his esophagus removed mm -hmm. and the top half of his stomach removed. It was like a minimal okay. invasive surgery. It was really groundbreaking at the time. It's like old hat now, but um, yeah. And, and esophageal cancer has one of the lower survival rates, like five-year survival rates to it. Oh, wow. Um it was so like it was an uphill battle and they knew that, but like and he went back to life and then it came back and they, they, just, they just didn't get enough of it. And they were like spinal column. That's it. That's, that's it. it. That's the game. That's the ball game. So there are things you can do from that point that make life easier on those around you. You can prepare them. You can prepare yourself. You can go through whatever treatments are there to prolong things. You can not go through the treatments that are there to prolong things. What I would not recommend doing is saying, modern medicine has failed me, so I'm going to go the alternative medicine route. What's the alternative medicine route? Deep dive internet type stuff. Um, mm. So like my my dad was, he for a while there, he was taking something called black salve, which is... I think it's it's just like cyanide that you're taking. Like it's it almost killed him, right? Uh, coffee enemas were a thing. Guess who got to administer those? And how old were you? Fifteen. Yes, uh, sixteen by then. Yeah, sixteen. How was that? Zero five stars would not recommend. Do not purchase. Fire beware. Do not purchase. Uh, yeah, and then you know he wasn't doing any like additional chemo radiation so like the cancer just took over after a while like he was i remember he would he would limp and he would grab my shoulders and like drag himself to the bathroom and would drag himself back to bed after that and because it was in his spinal columns cutting off the nerves to his legs and we got a hospital bed eventually and he was in the hospital bed in our living room for the rest of his time with us and the the real problem here is not even any of that. I mean, I'm doing bedpans. Um, he's like he's like swallowing frozen liver pills and 
all the stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We were absolutely 100% convinced that if we just believed hard enough, we were going to win. Oh, wow. And the the first time my mother admitted to the oldest three of us, not the rest of the family, but the oldest three of us that we were going to lose him was the night before he died. And how old were you at that 16. point? Oh, wow. Yeah. So this whole time you're going through, you know, he'll be better. He's taking all these yeah, things. We're gonna even win. though he's we're not gonna win. chemo. Yeah. We're going to win yeah. the power of prayer. And, and, and we weren't allowed and- to talk about the alternative. We didn't talk no about preparation. no preparation at all. We were only prepared for a miracle. Mm-hmm. And so those don't come along very often. Yeah. And um, you know, if people came to visit and they're like, he's looking skeletal, he doesn't look good, whatever, we we would not we wouldn't talk to them about it. Completely disengage. Right? Because that was gonna threaten our faith in the miracle, which is going to happen. You kind of were forced into dissociation. Yeah. Yeah, as but as a group. Yeah. And I remember he, at the end, like the last 48 hours, he was, he wasn't in touch with reality, right? He was right. like, he kept, he kept saying like, stop that on the ceiling, right? He was convinced that like, there was like a little flame on the ceiling. He's like, put it out, put it out, put it out. And my mom's like, yeah, I've been up all night and not in his right mind. I don't know what's going on. Um, and then she she pulled us aside that evening, the three oldest, and she basically said, I don't know how long he's going to be like this, but we're not going to win. That night at 3 a.m., my mom wakes mm. me up and says, get downstairs right now. And he had died in the night. She was with him. No one else was. Wow. What kind of emotions did you go through? Well... I mean, first and foremost, I was just extremely annoyed at the hospice lady who came in the middle of the night. She was like, now go up to the bed and say goodbye. And and I'm like, just shut up. You don't know. You don't know anything. You don't, you don't know what this is. This whole thing is a whole lot deeper than you're used to dealing with. Right. And I knew that at the time, right? And so it's like, this is, it's it's the whiplash factor. Right? Mm. Were you in 24 yeah. hours, you were expected to pivot on a dime from God is going to give us a miracle if only we believe hard enough to we're going to lose him and losing him. There was no yeah. chance to say goodbye. The last conversation I had with my father, he thought that I was a plumber for the Arlington Heights plumbing group. So you didn't even get to say bye I just to said, dad. No, dad, it's me. He's like, oh, okay. And I went upstairs and went to bed. And it was the last time I ever spoke with him. Mm. And. We immediately went into a flurry of, of, of activity, right? It's the middle of the night. Yep. They take the body away. We're, we're, we're breaking down the hospital bed. We're moving furniture. Uh, I go and tell our next door neighbor, who's like you know, a quarter of a mile away, right? But I go tell him when 5 a.m. hits and I know he's milking his cows, hey, this mm-hmm. happened. I'm like returning equipment and such that we had borrowed from people. I don't remember a whole lot about that day. Right. It's the way trauma works. Yeah. I remember extremely clearly, and I will till the day I die, when we had to wake up the younger ones. Mm. Yeah. Was that the hardest part? That was the hardest part. That's one of the worst memories yeah. of my life. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, I, ha- I haven't lost a parent. Mm-hmm. I remember when my grandfather passed. Right. Um, telling my younger cousins because I was the older one and it was like the whole responsibility thing, right? So we lived, it was like a mother-daughter house and my grandparents lived in one side of the house and then we had ours. Our uncles and aunts and everybody was just coming and everybody was sad, but I, I don't really know how much the younger ones knew. Yeah. So to tell the story right. and they had so many questions and it was like, well, all the adults are clearly going through this stuff. Yeah. So how did you handle it? Like how, what type of support system did you have at that time to be able to get you over that? I mean, obviously 
you know, there's 10 siblings right. and you have mom, but was that it? Essentially, yes. A couple of friends mm. from church were looking out for us. But uh, the rest, like my dad's family was all in Chicago still. My mom's family mm. lives in Southern Florida. Like she, my mom is, my mom's from the Dominican Republic. She's not from, she's not from up North, right? She, right. she moved to Chicago when she married my dad. Mm. So like, here we are, dilapidated farmhouse. My dad died in August. My, my mom, she rented like a major, like giant Winnebago, whatever trailer and drove us from Northern Wisconsin down to Florida for Christmas that year because she didn't want to do Christmas alone with us. Um, yeah. It was really difficult, right? It was really difficult. And like, so this horrible traumatic, like series of events happens. Mm -hmm. My mother <laughs> took it a lot harder than I did, of course. Yeah. And like there was, that's a whole other ball of wax. Right. Um, she and I didn't get along very well. There's a lot of like knocking of heads and we eventually moved. We moved out of that house. We bought another house near the friends who were looking out for us, like just down the road from them um, further North than Junction city and larger community than Junction city. Um, more people, more people. Yeah. About 20 minutes from a, a city called Wausau, mm -hmm. which is almost like direct center of the state. And, right. uh, and that was where the church was too. So it was much closer for us. And, you know, we, we lived our lives um, mm -hmm. as best we could. Uh, I stepped into the void as best I could. But what ended up happening was really blazing a trail of rebellion away from the framework that my parents had operated within. Mm. That like <laughs> has gone through many, many stages and iterations as I've gotten older and older. Right. But I have a healthier relationship with my mother now than I did before. You know, I got, I was, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder about five years ago. So mm -hmm. that's, it's been good to get on medication. It's been good to be in therapy and all the things that I need to be doing to keep myself healthy. But like that went undiagnosed for a very long time, right? Nearly derailed my career and it nearly ruined my marriage. And, and it was only like when I got to the end of my rope that I got help for that. So not only did you go through all of this trauma, but you already, you also have an undiagnosed, unchecked mental disorder happening, which, I mean, my mom was diagnosed with bipolar. They later realized that she's not bipolar. It's complex uh, PTSD. Yeah. But I remember them trying to get her on the right kinds of medications. It was, it was touch and go for a while. How was your journey with that when you first got diagnosed? Did it take you a while to kind of regulate or did medication become like, wow, this is so much clarity? So it's, it was, um, a little bit like throwing darts at a dartboard at first. <laughs> There's no scanner yeah. they can stick your head in and then it spits out, oh, it's bipolar type two. Right? Yeah. Yep. They're like, well, we think you have this. And if it responds to certain meds, then we know we've got it. Right. So yeah. I went through that process. It was a slow, it was difficult. And, you know, there's lack of patience for the people whose patients you've already tried. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I thought you were getting this handled. I don't know what the delay is. You still screwed up. Did you ever want to give up on like that journey of finding their medication no, and stuff? Never once. Really? Yes. Because my diagnosis gave me a meaning to the way I have operated a clarity. Ooh, okay in some ways a rationale, right? Not, okay. not that that's a good thing, but at least I have mm -hmm. a, a way to a lens through which I have clarity about myself, which I'd never had before that point. I'm 32 years old at that point. Right. You know, right. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Time out. This isn't normal. And I, so, and, and at that point I could never go back. I was like, I'm never going to let myself believe that feeling that way is normal. Mm -hmm. Do I still feel that way? Yes. Right. Right. But it's, it's learning that the weather changes, but it does not need to change you. I love that. I love that analogy. It's so true. Like 
I, I've been on a positive mindset journey for a little bit over a decade now. And when I first started, it just felt fake. Like everybody looks at me now and they see bubbly, personable Sam. Um, they don't realize all the darkness and all of the processing and everything that I had to go through in order to get to this point. Now, I'm not a mental health expert. You know, I'm not going to sit here and diagnose myself. Uh, growing up, my mom was in an abusive relationship where she was constantly called crazy. Mm. You're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. So for me, I heard that and I understood that as a negative thing. Right. It wasn't you're mentally ill, it was you're crazy. Yes. And because I associated that with her having to be on medication and things like that, I never wanted that stigma to be attached to me. Yeah. I never wanted to be known as crazy. Yes. So I decided that I had to do it all by myself. Right. So I didn't do therapy. I didn't do medication. And I actually, uh, I was cleaning out my basement. I'm actually in my basement right now. Okay. Uh, but I was cleaning out my basement so that I could set up this little area for myself. And I came across an old journal. Okay. And I was reading through it. It was through dark times. And I was reading and I'm like, I wish I would have went to therapy yes. for these times yes. because I feel like I wouldn't have suffered right. as long as I did. You know, I, um, but it took a long time for me to even get to the point where I would be open for it. Yeah. You know, like you, you have to go, like, if that's the case, right. And there is stigma. Mm -hmm. We're, we're taught. It's also okay. Well, yeah. And, and we cover things mm -hmm. for the decency of it. Yeah. And sometimes we're covering that with positivity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're covering that with industriousness. Sometimes mm -hmm. we're covering that with our competence. We are yeah. the peacock, right? The feathers come yeah. out. It's very beautiful in the front. All the ugliness yeah. is in the back. Yeah. And it's true. And it takes time to even, like, you have to go through some stuff before you're even ready to have that conversation with yourself. And uh, mm -hmm. for me, it's, it's 16 years, right? Yeah. From that point to the point that I say, I can't. Like this, can't there's something wrong here. Um, right. There's a, a great documentary that helped me a lot called The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive by Stephen Fry. And he's like interviewing all these famous people who are bipolar and no one knew about it, right? He's interviewing like Carrie Fisher who's bipolar and is a large portion why she stopped acting for so many years. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And she's describing stuff and I'm like, he, people, he's, he's interviewing. Light bulb. Yeah. And he's interviewing people who are like, I don't want to go on meds. I like myself when I'm, when I'm manic. Manic. Right. I hate mm -hmm. myself when I'm depressive, but I, I don't want to give up the mania oh, because right. that's, they want to be that person. Mm -hmm. I it's like chasing the high sort of, but it's, it's almost like, cause if it's, when it's bad, oh, bad man. type one is extremely dangerous. And P you like, you get delusions and, and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm type two way easier to manage. So like I speak from a place of luck and privilege is from that standpoint. Right. Mm -hmm. But I rejected the person that I am when I'm manic. And when you really? do that, you also have to reject the person you are when you're depressive. So what's left? In the middle. Life in the middle. You have to bracket yourself. Right. I refuse to live above this line, and I refuse to live below this line. And the, the voice in your head will try to convince you to cross the line. Meds Ooh. help, right? The meds mm -hmm. shrink the top and bottom for you. But you can still go across that line. Again, sometimes weather gets bad. And you got to mm -hmm. sometimes you got to hang on by your fingernails until things get better. Mm -hmm. But I live a life now where I refuse to believe that the problematic person that I was is the person that I am. I absolutely love that. I um, 
a lot of the experiences that I went through with the trauma that I experienced, I have really bad problems with self-worth and value. Am I capable of doing this? Am I strong enough? Am I smart enough? Am I this enough? That imposter, that like voice in my head is constantly on. It's always talking. It's always in the background whispering, but sometimes it screams so loud, so loud. And it can get paralyzing because it's all you can hear. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily I have, you know, I I put in a lot of work. I put in a lot of self work, uh, like self development and emotional work and, you know, pulling things out of my box, processing and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean that I, that I'm healed. It doesn't mean that those experiences don't still come up because they do. And it's easy for people on the outside to be like, oh, no, you're enough. And like, I so appreciate those people. You know, they make it so that my, that they shut the imposter up sometimes when I can't do it for myself. But I'm also so confident in myself and i know that that imposter is just that it's just an imposter it doesn't define who i am and who i've become i'm sam right i'm not just this or just that i'm sam and i just i just want to do and be me yeah i want to be past i don't want to think about and worry about the future I've been there. I've done that. And all it does is cause worry and stress and anxiety and all these mm-hmm. crazy things in my head to be like, well, what, what does the future hold and how are you going to get there? And then, then like the planning takes over and I've got to make checklists and I got to do this and it's big picture. And it's like, no, just be. Let me ask you something. How are you with fear? Oh, so I love changing the perspective on fear. So I used to think that I had a fear of failure. Okay. I used to feel that I wasn't going to be able to live up to other people's expectations. I have decided that I needed to reframe that. Okay. Because I don't, I shouldn't be living to somebody else's expectations. Mm -hmm. I should be living up to my expectations. So do I have a fear of failing? I don't, I don't think so. My fear, I think, is more, I have a fear of success. Yes. Will success, whatever success means, will it change who I am as a person? Right. Like trauma did. Yes. You know, if I become successful... Mm-hmm. Will I still be Sam? Yes. Or will I be somebody else? You will be somebody else. <laughs> You'll be future <laughs> Sam. No, see, that's, I'll be a better that's, I have Sam. felt that exact fear like deep in the heart of me, and mm-hmm. it's because you can't you can't climb back over the fence. And what if the grass is not as green as I think it is over? Right. right? Or right. You know, you know, what if I get over there and I don't like it? What if I <laughs> yeah. wanted the wrong thing? What if? What if? What if? What if? Yeah. Yeah. Those freaking what ifs, man. Yeah. But I have a deeper fear too. And the fear is not having control of my destiny. Mm. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a fear of lack of control. Yeah. And I have, I have control issues. Well, but that, and that informs the being protector, right? It informs yeah. like, you know, you, you, you want to you want to grab control if you can because mm-hmm. it's a mental perspective about how hard the world is yeah you know yeah that, you know, look people don't get protected by accident people get protected mm-hmm. when somebody takes the time and energy and focus to shield them from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? Like this is, it doesn't happen by accident. And so like, 
I think that people who've been traumatized are particularly prone to this perspective, mm-hmm. right? And it's not mm-hmm. wrong, but like all perspectives, you can't allow it to run amok. Right. And that's the thing, right? And and fear is like a primary motivator for all of us, but like that fear of success is kind of like overlaid on top of that, right? Yeah. Who am I going to be? Is this really what I want to do? Can I go back mm-hmm. and turn around? I think maybe that just has to do more with, it's like driving a car here in the United States. Like you miss your exit, you're doomed. There's no going back. <laughs> it's like a huge pain to get off and find another way and turn around and go back. And then like in Britain, there's like, you just hop on a roundabout, you turn around, you go back, right? They have yeah. mechanisms for that to be easy, you know? And then right. of course you have like New Jersey turnpike and the jar handles. And I, I, get, <laughs> oh, I get so confused, but. Um, They're confusing. Yeah. But I, you know, it depends on your operating system, right? It depends on the structure that you have. Do you have mm-hmm. a structure that makes it easy to go back and start over? Do you yeah. have a perspective that makes it easy for you to go back and start over? Or do you not? And a support system. Yes. Right. will facilitate that. Because, because sometimes I need to not be at the wheel. Yeah. Sometimes I need to say, you know what? I can't do this right now. Can you take over? Yeah. And being able to hand that over, even though... I have control issues because of the things that I went through in my past, but control and trust go hand in hand. Yes. I cannot be in control as long as I trust the person who is in control. Yes. And that's hard to do. Oh, (laughs) so hard. And trusting someone, this is what people miss, right? Trusting someone in that, that way has nothing to do with how you feel about them. Yeah. It has nothing to do with whether or not you care about them. People are like, you don't trust me. You don't like me. I'm like, no, that's not it at all. I like yeah. you. I love you. You're great. You're wonderful. I just, I can't with 100% certainty relinquish the reins because I'm afraid you're going to ruin it. <laughs> it's about <laughs> it's about self-protection, right? Yeah. That control yeah. thing is linked to protection of what we care about and ourselves. It's self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the way things need to be, right? Otherwise, you're, yeah. you're, you open yourself up in a way that you're not comfortable doing. Absolutely. And I think that people who have gone through trauma, I think that that's tougher. Oh, It's yes. harder because we've already been burned. Yeah. <laughs> we've already yeah. lost trust. We've already been betrayed. We've already been whatever. Yeah. So now it's like, well, if I give you this, right. what's left? I don't have anything for myself. Yeah, and, and or you know that what happens when I invest in that again? Right? Mm. What happens when they get slow? Maybe it's not even yeah. going to be your fault, right? Maybe it's not even going to be your fault. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, even but you still blame yourself. Yeah, but even the small things, right? Even these tiny things, it's like, no, let me pack the car for vacation because if something goes wrong, at least I will know that I'm the one who made the mistake, right? And then I don't have to get get into these social battles where I'm like, there, I'm I'm saying like, why did you do it this way? You should have done it that way, right? You you can hang your hat on the right way to do things. <laughs> I'm laughing because we have road trips yeah, often, yeah. and me and my husband argue about how to pack the truck oh, yeah. <laughs> all the time because it's like I think that you should do it this way. It's like, well, I want to do it this yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. And it's it's the little things. Right. Right, it's the little things that become the big the argument. Like my dad says, it's mountains and molehills. And that's the thing is, like my 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 wife is like, well, how come you just don't trust me with this? Because it's a little thing. You should be able to trust me with little things. It's like I try. I fail a lot of times, Mm -hmm. right? But I try, and it's 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 like an area of growth of like acknowledging that you are beyond. Mm-hmm. be like they the monsters can't get you from here right mm-hmm. like that's it's saying like that doesn't that doesn't exist anymore i can i can make sure without having to do it all alone yeah and you know it's it's just it's it's there and, and honestly i don't think that it's just that people with trauma are prone to it mm-hmm. i think that trauma causes this perspective in many cases 
You know, I was 16 yeah. years old when I started, you know, 14 years old. And you go back further. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that changed my trajectory. Yeah. And it's fine to a certain extent, right? Like, it's, yeah, like it's it fine. happens. Like, I can't happened, do anything to happened. change it. Um, you don't have to hate yourself and who you've become simply mm. because a terribly negative thing contributed to who you are. Mm. There's a, I, I say this. I did that. Well, yeah. I, I did I, that I, for a while. How could you not? How could I yeah. not? Like, yeah. you're like, this sucks and it didn't have to be this way. Yeah. And it's like, okay. So true. At some point though, you have to say it didn't have to be this way, but it was this way. Yeah. And you have to let go of whatever hypothetical self you may have become and mm. learn to accept the real person that you have become. Yeah. And part of that too is living a life aspirationally mm. and understanding like I, love I want to grow and yeah. I want to be this sort of person. So I'm going to change things mm. about myself today that I can change. So that way tomorrow I've got a better shot at being that person. Right. That's where you harness the control element, right? Mm -hmm. You say, no, look, I am in control of the sort of person that I am. Right. I'm in control of me. Yeah. I'm in control of me. And at, even if things go awry, like I'm in control of my responses to, mm -hmm. to things. Um, but at the same time, because like, it's a very delicate balance, right? Yes. Because I don't want to tell people what you went through wasn't that bad. Because mm -hmm. in, in every case, it's every bit as bad as right. it was. That's a real yep. true thing that we would be doing a deep disservice to everybody if we did not acknowledge that. Yeah. But I also want to say in certain lights and with certain circumstances, it's not that bad because there are good things in life that remain mm -hmm. right and it's like okay right. so they, all these the you survived it bad stuff has happened in my time right bad stuff has happened in your time we're not comparing mm -hmm. notes right we're not we're not comparing grades here yeah there's there's no uh award for whoever experiences but it's the best trauma. A and trauma and i only got a b plus no like that's that's not the way it works right it's yeah. it's now it's a matter of like where do we go from here is the most right. important question. You acknowledge where you are and what led you here. But mm -hmm. knowing that the past does not exist anymore, knowing that that's the case, where do we go from here? The future mm -hmm. doesn't exist either, but it could. Right. The past, there's no chance of it right. existing again. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to give the nod to the future when you're tossing the coin. Yeah. And where do we go from here is, is a question for ourselves, right? How do I, mm -hmm. who do I want to be and what do I want to be? Like these are, you have to have clarity about that. What do I want to be? What sort of person do I want to be? Who do I want to be in the end? And when you can do that, when you can make decisions about who you want to be, you have unlocked this new perspective about the malleability of self. Yeah. I am not healed. Mm -hmm. You are not healed. Why? Because the wound and the scar are part of you. It's there. They're there. They don't ever go away. Right? Mm -hmm. Am I healed? No. Will I be healed? No. Am I getting better? All the time. All the time. All the time. Progress, not perfection. You will always be healing. Mm-hmm. Right? And you have the ability to change your trajectory to be something better. We're not consigned to, to, to be, to consign ourselves to this like victimhood. Yeah. It gives all the bad people and the bad things in the universe the win. Yeah. And I am, totally. I'm just stubborn enough for that to be unacceptable. <laughs> It's so true. I would rather, like, I say all the time, I'm disgustingly positive. Mm. 
I don't subscribe to the toxic positivity. Like I'm never going to shut down somebody's emotions and say, no, please don't feel that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. You should only feel happy a hundred percent of the time because right. you know, if you just think happy thoughts, everything is better. Right. But on the other side, I also believe that if you think happy thoughts, things will get better. Yes. You know, like you have, when I first started my journey, uh, on this positive mindset, I literally had to train myself to think happy yeah. thoughts. Yeah. I literally had to search for those silver linings right. in everything. And it was exhausting. Yes. <laughs> it's like new habits always on. are. Yeah. <laughs> and like in the beginning of my journey, I was nagging my husband mm. all the time because it was like, can you just stop thinking negative? Can you just stop putting that out into the universe? Can you just stop? Can you just stop? Can you just stop? And he's like, can you just stop? <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's like, the only one changing here is you. Right. <laughs> he's like, stop trying to make me something that I'm not because you're trying to change your perspective. Right. And I was like, okay, I, I can understand that. But can you not be so negative? <laughs> <laughs> but when I first started down the journey, looking back now, I don't think I was ever going to be able to get to this point when I first started because I felt like every time I started taking a step, then something would happen. And I'd be like, see, I wasn't supposed to be happy anyway. Yeah. See, this happened. See, and it was all of these things that I, I could have and almost did decide to let define me. Right. I almost said, you know, it, it's not worth it to be on this journey. Right. Now, I absolutely love life. Like, I'm genuinely happy. Yes. Does that mean I don't have scars? No. It just means I continue to move on even with them. Yes. I can't change the fact that they're there. Well, and to start like eventually, this is where things get wild, right? This is where things start to like bend your mind. It's like <laughs> bend once it. you once you I get enough distance from it. Mhm. Mm this is like the the capstone on it, right? Can you appreciate it? Yes. For having put you on the trajectory where mm. you are today like do you get to a point where you love and appreciate yourself the circumstances mm -hmm. you have and the life that you've built enough to say i would not do it over again in a different fashion yeah can you tip the scales in the goodness of life side mm -hmm. that you can look back and say honestly and truly and this is a really difficult thing to say I'm probably going to kick myself for saying it myself. <laughs> that it was worth the price of admission. Ooh. Was your life worth the price of admission? I like, I'm going to take that from you, John, because okay. <laughs> that's absolutely incredible. Like, ha what? A, why don't you answer that? Like, have you gotten to the point in your life where you're like, hey, Thanks, trauma. <laughs> if I, yes, I have. And mostly. <laughs> Again, like you're never fully healed, right? Um, yeah. I have yeah. mostly, but like, you know, it's hard not to like blame my parents for putting us in that circumstance. Yeah. I don't anymore. Right. I don't. But, you know, that's, that's a, that's a journey and a half to have to get through. Um, yeah. No, like, yes, of course, like, my life is worth living now. I, I don't know that I would have said it was worth the price of admission 15 years ago. That's the power of putting work into yourself. And it's the power of time and distance and letting things become scars. And letting time and distance happen. Right. Because so often, how many times do we hear people giving up? Yeah. And not having that time and distance. Right. I'm, okay, soapbox time for me. Not that I haven't been on my soapbox this whole time. But Get on it, John. Get on it. There is a more than large thread that runs through our culture right now, especially our internet culture, especially on Twitter. 
I hate Twitter. <laughs> Twitter's terrible. But there's this there's this this thread that runs through our culture that is opposed to like diametrically and vehemently opposed to incremental change. Why? Because incremental change takes all the things we don't want to do, right? It takes strategy, it takes patience, it takes persistence, it takes hard work, and it takes being satisfied with not having met the goal. Yeah. And instead, our whole society seems now, especially politically, to be predicated on the notion that you need to give me now everything now. I must have total victory. Everything must be my way. There's mm -hmm. no compromise. There's no collaboration. There's only victory or, or defeat. And yeah. that is a disaster when we apply it to ourselves. Yeah. Because there's no – the only way we – make progress toward anything with ourselves is incrementally. Why? Because there is a very strict boundary line that we have to live by. And that mm -hmm. boundary line is 24 hours. Yeah. We only have today. And the only hope we can do, we, we can never meet the goal to, today, mm -mm. right? Tomorrow's goal can never be met today. We can only change a little bit and hope that we can change a little more tomorrow. Unless we're setting goals yeah. that are so dang easy that we can just handle them within 24 hours. That is not a life goal. That's a shopping list, my dears. <laughs> and so, so I'm, 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 you know, I, I look around and I see, you know, people want to have it. They want to have it all. They want to have it all right now. And it's good to want mm -hmm. the gold. But like, even on LinkedIn, I see this X is going to save us from everything. So just mm -hmm. do X and everything. You will have all mm -hmm. a year ago. It was crypto. Now it's chat GPT. Yep. I'm, I'm sorry. These things will not help us in the real struggle of life. Take it from people who have had real struggles in their life. Yeah. Chat GPT. <laughs> like that bad memory I have telling my younger siblings, you know, being, being there when that news was delivered. How's chat GPT going to have like hold a candle to any of that? Right. Yeah. How, how is chat GPT going to, uh, you know, are, are we supposed to plug in those questions and have yeah. those answers? What's the best one? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 oh, I saw a Medium article that had me like really hot on the collar. It was like <laughs> uh, talking about um, agile project management. They're like, Scrum Masters are going extinct. They're going to be replaced by ChatGPT. I'm like, N -n -n no. <laughs> no. No. That's not how oh, it works. Leadership. We're going to have bots giving us our TED Talks soon. Like, it's just. Yes, we're going to manufacture inspiration. That's not going to happen. That's not no. going to happen. You cannot, the, a robot can't give you empathy. It's not going to happen. Or authenticity. Or authenticity. Or authenticity. What does ChatGPT do without a human interacting with it? What does it do? Exactly. It sits Nothing. and it waits for an input. Idle. It waits for an input. Yeah. The only value it has is when a human being interacts with it. It's kind of like other human beings. Kind of, but... <laughs> <laughs> But it's not, if I'm not interacting with a human being, I'm still doing things that are worthwhile, that are valuable, yes. that are intrinsically valuable, right? Yes. That are immeasurably and comprehensively valuable. We yeah. are sparks of existence, bits of the universe reflecting upon itself. There is no Ooh. evidence that there is anything like this anywhere else in the universe. There could be, we don't know, but there's no evidence yet that this is the case. We could be completely unique phenomena. Mm -hmm. And the concept, the idea of plopping that phenomenon down in front of a computer screen and letting it tell stories to us until we die is so reprehensible to my mind. I'm like, this is going to take the place of entertainment. I'm like, why? What's the point? The yeah. only point of entertainment is that I am on a large level interacting with a human being and discussing the human condition. Like that is everything. Yeah. And like all of this is in the back of my head, right? All of this is informing. I find death to be a terrific motivator, you know? Sad but true. But it's not sad. It doesn't have to be sad, right? We only if we didn't if we didn't have a finite existence in some way, like there wouldn't be a point. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by sad but true is sad that people don't tap into that. Oh. People don't say, like, I exist for something. Right, right. Why? 
like my my husband listens to um alan watts okay and his uh like stoicism okay and he's like the more i listen the more i realize that the point of the human experience is just to be a human yes we keep trying to take away humanity yes or what we're doing is we're trying to create shortcuts right yeah we're trying to create shortcuts and that's the wrong question right this is the wrong question how do i get a shortcut is the wrong question yep the real question is where am i going Mm. you can find shortcuts to wherever you're going once you have some clarity about where you're going but instead in a vacuum to just say it's a shortcut look look everyone it's a shortcut here's more yeah more what more what yeah that's um yeah is an old an old humphrey bogart movie called key largo i recommend Mm. people check it out it's (laughs) uh a guy at a he's stuck during a a hurricane in florida um Mm -hmm. it's a group of people like and there's this mob boss and his gangsters and they're like holding them hostage in the middle of a middle of a hurricane they don't know if they're going to survive or not and it's like how are they going to escape from this mob boss and he's talking to this mob boss another person is like what do you want what do you want from us he's like don't you understand he wants more that the mob boss stops and he thinks he's like yeah yeah i want more that's all i want is more yeah it's like okay that is totally unfocused (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like you need some help yeah. Because we live in a world right now where we just want more. Yeah. It's like more of what? More mashed potatoes, yeah. right? <laughs> more cars? Yeah. Like what what do we want? Do we want more speed? We're going to we don't know where we're going, but by by god, we're going to get there fast. We're going to get there faster. And that's the thing people are like, "Well, this is this is going to be the next the next evolution of humankind." And I'm like, "I don't see it." Yeah. Can we just can we just focus on the original? You can't even eliminate road rage. <laughs> and you're telling me we're going to evolve into machines that we can put our brains inside jars or whatever. I'm like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't buy it. <laughs> anyway, rant over. Road, Soapbox. Road rage, in a, road rage in a jar. <laughs> People can, again, like, we'll be going 80 miles an hour on the Jersey Turnpike in jars. Yeah. Screaming and yelling at each other. You know? <laughs> Oh gosh, John, this was a fantastic conversation. But before we wrap it up, um, I have three questions that I plan on asking all of my guests. If you could go back in time and talk to the John that's in the thick of their trauma, what advice would you give him or words of wisdom? I would say write down the stories you're telling yourself because it's going to be important to remember later. I would say the story itself is not evil. And I would say, tell it when you're ready. I would say, make plans and set goals because those things are good. But don't hold on to them with too firm a grip because you'll miss other opportunities if you do that. That is incredible advice. Incredible. Current you. Current me. And I think you already answered it, but if you could go back in time and have the chance to do it all again or make that shift and everything be fine, would you do it? No, but I, if I had the ability to go through it again with knowing what I know now and being who I am now, mm-hmm. I'd have done a better job with it. Ooh. You know, I just, I would, yeah. I would not. The experiences shape who we are. Yeah. And, you know, this stuff happened over 20 years ago, right? And it's like, yeah, it's not fair to try to take the test with an additional 20 years of experience. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, if you're talking about would I have the chance to, to relive it knowing what I know now, I might take that. But yeah. if you're talking about just going back, waving a magic wand, bam, none of this happened. No, not even a little bit. And again, this precipitated an exodus from a mindset that was unhealthy. Mm. I wouldn't have even had a shot at health right. if I had stayed behind. Right. So this is, yes. Was this thing a catapult that flung me out of the castle? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But life in the castle was no good. Yeah. And then last question. Mm-hmm. What is current you doing now that future you will be proud of? 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Save the most tricky one for last. I don't know. Um, I think some of the stuff I'm doing right now, some of the stuff that I've got going on, like professionally is a big deal for me right now. I'm, I'm like in the middle of some bigger projects that like I can't talk about quite yet, but mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a big turning point for me. You know, as I'm heading toward 40, I've committed to doing some things that I want to do. Mm. I've committed. I'm, I am, I'm most likely moving back out to the countryside with my family. We lived out in the country for, 12 years and then we moved closer to the city and then everything changed with my career and I'm probably going to move back out there right next year. But then like, I want to go back to, I want to go back to school. I want to go get my doctorate. Um, I want to, I want to do some things for me because I've loaded myself down with responsibilities my entire adult life. And now it's time to start living a life that I can find joy in. That. That's profound. Joy and purpose and all of that. John, it has been my absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I hope that our listeners are going to get something out of it. I know I did. I, there's so much I'm going to be reflecting on this after this conversation. Um, so to all you viewers out there, please make sure to like and subscribe and yeah, we'll catch you on the awesome. flip side. Thank you so much.